this is a trigger warning for this episode. There is mention of pretty severe violence, as well as sexual assault and rape. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is up hard tired. Today we have Laura and Ambria. We are also joined by two incredible guests today, Olivia and Roanne. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you guys. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yay. <laughs> Today we are talking about the occupation of Palestine. We'll start with some basics and history and then get into some more current events and issues facing Palestinians today. So first some history and I want to, you know, give a little disclaimer to start. This is not going to be an all encompassing history. This is us trying to distill a really complicated history or at least complicated enough that it takes a while into a small amount of time. So forgive us for anything that we leave out. But I wanted to start with saying that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a quote unquote forever conflict as many people claim, um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that's been going on forever. And it really has a fairly clear start in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the dawn of Zionism. Before that time, there are many accounts of Jews living peacefully among the Arab population, and they would even have each other, you know, babysit each other's children. Um, Zionism is the belief that Jews were given Israeli land by God and they have the sacred duty to build modern structures throughout the land, even if that includes using force. So the religious justification for Zionism was combined with this kind of political rhetoric as political Zionism's founder, Theodore Herzl, had this idea that because of anti-Semitism in Europe, Jewish people needed to find a place to be like on their own, to be the majority in order to be safe. He also saw it in terms of Jewish people had a rightful place with the like Western tradition, with the West, in terms of how he saw himself or he saw particularly white Jewish people as being denied their rightful place as being part of like the Occidental, if you put it, instead of the mm-hmm. Orient. Like they were being treated as inferior and he obviously didn't want it to continue to be that way and that was why he in fact called zionism a colonial movement he used colonialism as like a positive thing as was pretty common during the times and he saw like assimilation with europe as the way for jewish people to survive totally Zionist rhetoric also claimed that Palestine was the quote-unquote perfect place because in addition to being religiously significant, people claimed that the land was empty. This was widely seen through the slogan, quote, a land without a people for a people without a land. Now, of course, many Palestinians already lived in Palestine, but Lord Balfour of Britain, who supported Zionist measures, noted 
that Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long tradition, in present needs, in future hopes, a far profounder import than the desire and prejudices of 700,000 Arabs who inhabit that ancient land. So from the very beginning, Westerners allied themselves with the Zionist movement against the Palestinians. And the reasons behind the Balfour Declaration are actually pretty interesting and I don't think as widely known as it should be. I think it's usually depicted in terms of being that like these white Europeans suddenly felt very guilty for anti-Semitism against Mm. Jewish people. Like before, like for the pogroms and stuff that was happening before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. But actually when you dig deeper into the Balfour Declaration, you see that Balfour himself was actually a huge part of passing the 1905 Aliens Act that restricted the entrance of Jewish refugees from Russian pogroms into Britain. He was the head of the government responsible for the act. He personally piloted it through the House of Commons and his political rival, Winston Churchill, actually took advantage of that to try to rally up votes on his side. And he was in contact with, he was from like big newspapers like the Jewish Chronicle, the Board of Deputies Mm -hmm. of British Jews, and of and now Belfour found himself that he had to sort of like compete with that and try to do something about that. And both of them, both Belfour and Churchill were motivated by this anti-communist sentiment. They saw the proposal to support a Jewish homeland as being a good buffer against what they termed like Judeo-Bolshevism. And both of them were in terms of like the Sykes-Picot agreement where they were kind of like competing with France for strategic control of different parts of the Middle East, they saw it as being a good chance to be like an Asiatic Belgium or basically like a buffer the way France had with Belgium. And the two of them also saw like supporting Zionism and supporting this like Jewish homeland as being good for World War One propaganda efforts. Actually, they literally, there were pamphlets dropped in in the United States too and the UK that was like for any Jews that were fighting with the Axis powers in World War One. It's like, why are you fighting on this side? We're the one who support this homeland. And that's why even, even it's actually it's so interesting. Like even Germany wasn't, like Germany was in support of Zionism at a certain point. It was like they were all like fighting over this. And yeah, and also Balfour was motivated, as we're seeing today, that still continues. There's this like group of Christians who are in support of Zionism because yes. because they think the Jews need to congregate in Israel <laughs> so that they could be smited in like one place and like make it convenient on God, I guess. Like when for the for the rapture for the day of judgment. And so Balfour was like obviously completely anti-Semitic with how he saw Judeo-Bolshevism, but it, religiously he was interested in this idea. He's like, oh yeah, I guess they do need to congregate in one place so that like God can do his God thing. <sighs> so that's so just that's that's <laughs> That's the backup for Belfort Declaration. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's amazing. And before this happened, Britain promised the Palestinian people self-determination. So it, it also specifically goes against that previous declaration. Yeah, totally. And he, it was interesting, something that's always pointed out with the Belfort Declaration itself, it does this like vague thing where it mentions like, yeah, like the non-Jewish residents of Palestine have rights, but he, they, he, it was very intentional that he didn't put political rights. He didn't say that non-Jewish people have political rights to this land. And it was part of this whole thing 
where with that total colonial mindset they all had, it was just like, okay, what the indigenous people want doesn't actually matter. Like they're stupid and native and inferior. So that's like a really interesting about the declaration itself. Totally. So when this was going on, the population of this region was predominantly Muslim and Christian Arabs, even after the Holocaust. It was only through a mass exodus of Jews from Europe, which started far before the Holocaust, that Jews in Palestine even began to maintain a significant percentage of the population. European leaders backed Zionism in part because they were partially at fault. The development of Zionism as a political movement was entirely a product of European society in the age of imperialism, and it is impossible to understand outside of this context. Zionism was one response, the nationalist response, of a section of Jews to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, So in 1945, Britain didn't know what to do with the mounting conflict, so they turned the issue over to the United Nations. They were also facing both Palestinian and Jewish armed resistance because at this point kind of both groups were kind of getting sick of the mandate. And I think most notably would be the the King David Hotel bombing by Irgun, which was one of the Zionist militias that later went on to carry out the Nakba or the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. But before that, they bombed this hotel and killed like a good number of British soldiers. And so at that point, Britain saw it as too like politically, economically costly to maintain their mandate. Um, In the wake of World War II, international pressure significantly rose to give Jews a homeland. Uh, The United Nations made up a partition plan in 1947 where the land was divided into two states. Arabs received 43% of the land, even though they made up 69% of the population and owned over 92% of the land. Jews were given 56% of the land, often the most fertile land and only made up 31% of the population. As Pape notes, partition in the history of Palestine is an act of destruction committed within a framework of a UN peace plan, in quotes, that drew no international condemnation whatsoever. Partition signifies international complicity in the crime of destruction, not a peace offer. Um, Within this framework, anyone who spoke out against the partition became an automatic enemy of peace, even though it meant almost 300,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes. Seizing the international moment, Israel officially announced its statehood on May 15, 1948. This started a war between Israelis and Palestinians. And I personally wouldn't describe the Nakba as a war just because it implies that it was like equal armed force. Mm-hmm. And I, what we actually ended up seeing was these Palestinians who were who were massacred. There were multiple massacres. The most notable one is going to be the Deir Yassin massacre in which about 200 Palestinians were killed. I think an awful story that we heard out of the Nakba was someone who was like a young boy at the time, like in the Deir Yassin massacre, who actually saw Zionist soldiers, Zionist like uh, militia members, throw the baker's son into into the oven, and we have this. Ugh. It was. It's uh, like there were multiple stories like this. There were stories of what I mean. What comes with these kind of things like rapes and I'm sorry, huge, huge trigger warning. Hopefully, we could put that in earlier. Absolutely, we'll put it in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry, but it was they like Palestinians were nowhere near as armed or as trained. There was obviously certain like amounts of resistance 
but at the end it was basically completely lopsided and basically i think i would i would just definitely recommend people try to request a screening or try to watch this film called 1948 creation and catastrophe because it interviews uh zionist militia members like from haganah and irgun and it also interviews palestinian refugees and um historians and you hear these stories just about how besides the massacres there were they had recordings of like people screaming and stuff and they put it on like these loudspeakers and they paraded the loudspeakers through certain towns and this scared people because they thought it was like actual actual murders happening and how basically what we saw from plan dalit it was called was that it was a very it was a very intentional the purpose of these zionist militias doing this was to create a jewish majority by force by forcing these palestinians to leave um in fear of their lives and actually we even saw testimony from a zionist militia member who said yes that when a palestinian tried to return to his house after most of the fighting had i shot at him or like they mm. people were shot at when they tried to return so i always think it's like this is the root of the conflict itself because it wasn't that fighting happened and people left it was that fight like massacres happened fighting happened with the intention of getting people to leave and then they were physically not allowed to return mm. right. and speaking of the discrepancy uh the israeli troops even though neighboring arab countries backed palestine outnumbered the palestinian forces by 90,000 to 68,000 and after these violent sort of pushing out moments that you spoke on, the Israeli army took even more land. So the West Bank came under the jurisdiction of Jordan and Gaza came under Egypt. Over 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forced out of their homes, many of which, you know, thought that they would be able to return. And like you said, they were physically not allowed to do that. Um, the Palestinian refugee refugee crisis would only be exacerbated with the 1967 war where the Israeli state determined it wanted to occupy the rest of historic Palestine. This displaced more than 400,000 Palestinians, many of which were being displaced for a second time. This refugee crisis is unique because it has far more permanence than any other refugee settlements in the world. Many Palestinian refugees are the third or fourth generation to be born into the refugee camps. Additionally, these refugee camps were not and still aren't safe havens. Um, the military occupation can only be described as unbearable. These conditions led to the first acts of resistance called the Intifada. Yeah, so the first Intifada, or shaking off, um, included large amounts of Palestinians rebelling against the Israeli occupation. Homemade weapons were used against the Israelis as the Palestinians did not have access to formal military weapons or training, you know, as um, Roan mentioned earlier. So as a result, the Israeli government took on a policy that came to be known as the break the bones strategy. During the first intifada, over 400,000 Palestinians were imprisoned without any charges and torture was rampant. Often, the United States and other Western elites cite the intifadas as a reason why they assist and align themselves with Israel. I have to say, it's always amazing to hear these like Western media or Western elites speak of the intifada as being something that scared Israelis more. It's like, it really is bizarre. Right. Like I will never get used to it because what Palestinians were going through in that intifada was just so 
unimaginable. Like my friends and family who were in Palestine at the time, what they would do is there would be curfews and you wouldn't you basically only be allowed to get out of your house like one day a week. And this would just it was just a nightmare in terms of if you wanted to go to the doctor, if you wanted to go get medicine, if you wanted to do any of these kind of things. There were multiple times where Israeli soldiers would like storm an apartment complex and literally get everybody in the building to all congregate in the same apartment or like on the same like the same apartment on the same floor as they went searching and rifling through everybody's stuff Mm. can you imagine just like everybody in your apartment building you're all being cramped into like this one apartment as they're running around with their guns and screaming at everyone and like searching through everybody's things and like there were children who were going through this it was very traumatizing and in terms of what was being experienced in terms of the actual physical violence is that at the end of the day it's like this is a military like a nuclear power actually that has like all these weapons all this western support an actual you know army and what we were seeing are like it's the only place where like these are kids who are going to a military court and these are kids who are being held at administrative detention without trial so it is just a very fascinating look into what they see as like the legitimate use of violence where we are supposed to be upset about something happening to an Israeli soldier, but there's like right. an encyclopedia of excuses for when a Palestinian child dies. Like if a Palestinian mm-hmm. child who's like obviously a civilian dies, it's like, oh no, you don't understand. It's something that had to happen. So just being told your collateral damage. But if a soldier dies who's not even supposed to be uh, occupying your land in the first place... If a soldier dies, it's like, oh, this is the most horrible thing. And it's just, it is just, yeah, I'm sorry, I get mad. (laughs) No, of course, it's like super fucked up. Yeah, so like their idea is like, oh, well, what about the Intifada? It's like the Intifada was way more horrifying on our side. Like we paid the price. Yes. So so since the first Intifada and the second Intifada, Israel has used these like as an excuse to continue to escalate their like military brutalization. So there was Operation Cast Lead in, in 2008 and 2009, and Operation Protective Edge, quote, uh, in the summer of 2014. And for that, the reasoning they gave was, like, as a retaliation to the kidnapping of three Israeli teenagers. And Israel knew that the teenagers had been killed, but withheld that evidence and, and launched what they called Operation Brothers Keeper, which is like, okay, come on. These are the corniest names for, like... <laughs> bombings um so so they began bombing yes uh like and they said that the reasoning was like for the to secure the release of these kidnapped teenagers so they began like bombing gaza like a a siege and this Mm. spiraled into like a summer of violence where they they intentionally targeted civilian infrastructure like schools and hospitals over 2300 palestinians were killed nearly 11,000 were wounded uh, many of whom were children and like 60, 70 Israeli soldiers were killed and five Israeli civilians. So um, you really see like the the difference there. You know, they 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 say that they're they're defending themselves. That's not what they're doing. They are launching an assault. They are launching, you know, a military offensive and almost nothing happens to them in return because Palestinians don't have the same military. They don't have the same weapons that they have. So it's not it's not it's not even fair to call it a war. Right. It's just how severely we've been dehumanized. Like, all you have to do is tell people, like, 
Hamas and human shields, and it suddenly becomes like perfectly okay with them. Like in the most recent uh, attack on Gaza in 2014, it becomes perfectly okay with them that 500 children are dead. Like they just they think there is an excuse for 500 children dying, but there is again it's like there's no excuse for anything that happens on the Israeli side. And actually, I read something really interesting today where a man from Gaza was interviewed like around 2009, and he was just saying he's like you know I became fluent in Hebrew and I've worked on the Israeli side and I've done all these things because I want to understand them and to be honest it's bizarre to me when I watch the news because all I see in the news is how scared they are and he's like you're scared but we're dying like yeah. we, you know that's what he said he's like we don't have bomb shelters to run to we don't have these weapons we don't have what you have and he's right. saying he's like they have a map of everywhere in Gaza they actually he said that around like his neighborhood like they came they like they're like everybody has five minutes to get outside of this the israeli soldiers like everybody has five minutes to get out of this building because it's about to get hit and then it got hit and to him he was like okay so you know where we live like it's not an accident you're not hitting these homes or these schools or anything like this on accident you know exactly and it's intentional so like you killing our children is intentional they really want to up the like the physical cost in terms of infrastructure and the co- like the human cost, just it's punitive. It's beyond punitive. And the defense they give for that is like, oh, well, the Palestinians are launching rockets. Where like, as if the rockets are some sort of like advanced missile. It's it's literally like rigged fireworks. It's not anything that actually it barely causes damage. But that's that's the defense they give. Right. It's yeah. like a fucking fertilizer rocket that hits an empty field and they lose their shit. And it's like, maybe you shouldn't even be there. Like, I think that's what it really boils down to in the end. I think somebody else put this in a really interesting way. They were like, I'm always hearing about like these human shields in Gaza, but I'm wondering if they ever stop and think that they're using their settlers as human shields. Like, it's, mm. it's, oh. it, it's illegal in international law. Like, if you don't want to even talk just purely morally, it's illegal in international law to move a civilian population into the territory you are occupying. And that is what they are doing completely. They keep sending in these settlers. They subsidize them. It's not that these settlers go by themselves. They literally get tax and work benefits to go Mm -hmm. into this area, this, like, little colonial outpost. And it's not like they even keep to themselves when they're there. They're fucking dicks. Like, they'll go down and they'll mess with the Palestinians that are around them. Like, all sorts of stories you hear. Like, they'll send their kids to throw rocks at Palestinian kids. They'll just go and... And just start like cussing Palestinians out. A time where Palestine, like where these Israeli settlers killed a Palestinian farmer on his land, you don't even hear about that. But the point is, is that they go into these colonial outposts. They are they have very violent, hostile attitudes towards the Palestinians that surround them, and they constantly do these things. And then when something happens to them, they're like, "Oh my God! Like how could you hurt a civilian?" I was like, "Don't stop! You can't send in these like." armed to the teeth settlers around these area of Palestinians so that you could like try to say to the world like oh like they're hurting our civilian population like you're using them as human shields to encroach further on territory you're not supposed to be occupying in the first place right and like there's also tons of um, examples of when you were describing you know people would come into an apartment building and say you have five minutes to get out also, like alarms going off suggesting that a bomb would be coming that the, you know, Israeli is put in place. But it's specifically for psychological torture as well. So they'll put off these like alarms 
and nothing will end up happening. But you don't know that when you're there. You don't know that nothing's going to happen. You have to assume every time that something's going to happen. Exactly, yeah. It's just totally insane. And so in addition to like way larger amounts of fatalities, Palestinians are disproportionately affected by a number of other indicators. Since 1967, about 12,000 Palestinian homes were demolished, um, 700 of which were during the Oslo peace talks. Israelis are allowed to continue expanding their settlements throughout the region, as you were describing, displacing more and more Palestinians of their own land. Architectural structures such as pipes and roads were built in such a way to harm Palestinians. For example, water pipes throughout the region are purposely built deeper underneath Israeli settlements and shallower where Palestinians live. And this creates water crises on a regular basis. And when there's a drought, it affects people, uh, it affects Palestinians. The occupation permeates all states of Palestinian life, control of movement, psychological trauma, illegal imprisonment and torture, control of education, control over employment, and tons more. In one act of Israeli occupation, soldiers destroyed a grove of olive trees that were hundreds of years old. And that seems like, okay, whatever, you destroyed these trees, but olives provided economic stability to that Palestinian town. And with them destroyed, the Palestinians were left with no income. And when you can't move around and you're not free to travel to find work, that leaves you completely economically unstable. And so it isn't to say that the loss of life on the Israeli side is acceptable, only that the violence against Israelis needs to be seen within the larger context of this issue. And it, it's important to recognize that a friend of mine said, if you step on someone's foot by accident and they're like, OK, can you stop? And you're like, OK. And then you end up stepping on their foot further. If they push you off of them, it makes fucking sense. Like, you can't just be like, we're going to push you until the brink and expect nothing in return. That is absolutely true. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. So uh, places like the United States use democracy as another reason for why they support Israel. But as Ilan Pape notes, Israel is, quote unquote, a democracy and... It's a democracy for Jewish citizens and even then white Jewish citizens over non-white Jewish citizens um, and all of these groups over the Palestinian citizens of Israel who face 65 discriminatory laws. It's wild. But this quote-unquote democracy, that majority decides what it wants, even if the majority is determined by means of colonization, ethnic cleansing, and recently by ghettoizing the Palestinians. So... Western ideologues can hide behind the facade of democracy, though it's clear that there is way much more at play. In fact, in January of 2006, Palestinians held the first full free election in the Arab world, which was carefully monitored and widely recognized as free and fair. However, when Hamas won control of parliament, the U.S. minimized its previous cries of democracy promotion and instead sided with Israel in punishing the Palestinians for voting the, quote, wrong way. The U.S. government began to immediately organize a military coup to overthrow the unacceptable Palestinian government, a practice which we've seen repeated throughout history all over the world. Yeah, first I want to add on the democracy thing. It's actually fascinating because it's like a big part 
of why the West and America in particular like identifies with Israel so much is they both have in common these like this liberal like an event like settler colonial idea of manifest destiny or like of of taming the land the land was wild and it was full of these savages and we went and we made it into something actually like useful and civilized on Hamas's election I always like to emphasize because people are like oh why do people even like Hamas like it's because uh, some people do think like okay Gazans deserve it because it's like why do they like Hamas why do they like this like awful islamist whatever why is trump fucking president why is trump fucking president that's a that's one goddamn thing like could you imagine if somebody justified bombing the shit out of americans because why do racist assholes vote for trump it's never it's obviously never gonna happen but like even like even if we wanted to play that game i wish people just understood that like Hamas fucking feeds people like they give people food and medicine and you can't be caring about like oh well what about like this beautiful theory of like liberal fucking anything if you're not eating and your kids aren't being fed and you don't have like medicine to do like that's that's the thing about like the appeal of these kind of politics of the middle east is like they get this support because they actually are physically meeting people's needs and if i'm not being fed i don't have room to care about anything else right of course so yeah and also like and hillary clinton herself was like it was funny. Her quote was like, "Oh, this is why we shouldn't have let them vote." I'm like, "Well, that's why you <laughs> didn't win, didn't you?" Yeah, that's why you fucking suck. That's why you fucking lost. Good riddance. <laughs> and I think people are scared to use the word, but we we need to use the word apartheid when we talk about the current conditions in Palestine and Israel's like claim of democracy. Totally. So apartheid is a word commonly used in reference to South Africa, but it essentially means institutionalized state-sanctioned segregation, so a different set of rules for different people based on their race. And there is a totally different set of rules for Israelis and Palestinians. So so when we see Israel calling itself the only democracy in the Middle East and, like, calling itself progressive for its beaches and nightclubs and, like, vegan restaurants, uh, Palestinians are living under military occupation. There's no freedom of movement for Palestinians. You know, there are certain roads restricted just for Israelis. Palestinians are forbidden from entering or living in the Israeli settlements, even though it was their homes who were demolished to build them. People who live in Gaza specifically need to apply for permits just to leave their neighborhood to go to the hospital. People die waiting for permits or their permits are like arbitrarily denied. Palestinians accused of any crime are tried in a military court, as Rowan mentioned, um, which has over 99% conviction rate, uh, which is crazy, versus Israelis who are tried in a civilian court. And especially in Gaza, they live under constant blockade, food shortages, medicine shortages, water shortages, electricity shortages. It's called like the open air prison because it's Mm. essentially it's unlivable. And for a time, Israel was even like calculating the number of calories that it would take to just like barely keep people alive. And you can't you can't just move around or leave. There's a wall. There are checkpoints. They often murder Palestinians at these checkpoints and and Palestinians can't vote in Israeli elections, obviously, because most of them aren't lucky enough to be granted Israeli citizenship. And even if they are lucky enough to have Israeli citizenship, like you mentioned, there are still at least 65 laws that explicitly discriminate against Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. And it's crazy because while it's in, it's like impossible, essentially, for a lot of Palestinians to get citizenship, Israeli citizenship is granted like almost automatically to any non-Israeli Jew. Like, if you're American and Jewish and you want Israeli citizenship, it's really easy for you to get it. And like it was mentioned, Palestinians also deal with the constant threat of having their homes demolished, you know, either, either to build 
illegal settlements or like as collective punishment. And this leaves thousands of people without a home every year. So Israel's not a democracy. You can't you can't be a democracy when you systematically brutalize half of the inhabitants of your country. And I think I think even people who are even just like marginally critical or distrusting of the state of Israel know that it that it claiming to be a democracy is just a flat out lie. It's a joke. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So the United States also cites that Arab allies surround Palestine, which somehow explains why they must balance those alliances by supporting Israel. But the reality is the Palestinian people aren't getting assistance from their neighbors. While they see bombs and tanks that are clearly coming from the United States that are like being, you know, shipped through Israel, they aren't getting this this assistance from their neighbors. What they see on a daily basis is the continuous use of American weapons by Israelis. Israel is the fifth largest nuclear power in the world. It has between two and 300 nuclear warheads. So the reality is that Israel is a regional superpower. At times, there has been something resembling an armed opposition to Israel, but nothing resembling like even a percentage of equal force. Oh, can I add so, something here too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I get, I get hyped. But I, that's the thing. It's like I constantly, something I'm constantly encountering is people being like, "Oh, wow! Like, look how many Arabs surround Israel. It's like one Jewish state and a million Arab state. Like this idea that like automatically like Arabs and Muslims are on like the Palestinian side. The number one funny thing is when they send me these maps. They'll like they'll include like fucking Azerbaijan or like places like this. I'm like, that's not even Arab. But like, okay. <laughs> But, like, even, even if it fucking was, it's, like, Saudi Arabia is your ally. Like, Saudi Arabia right. is on Israel's side. It's not on the Palestinian side. And just one of the worst massacres that ever happened to Palestinians was in Lebanon, in Sabran Shatila, in the refugee camps, where it was, like, a partnership between Israel and the Phalangists, who were, like, these Lebanese Christian fascists. And 3,000 Palestinians... Like Palestinian refugees were murdered after the PLO was like forced to withdraw from these camps, and so it's not like Lebanon even likes us. Like Lebanon doesn't even like, which pisses Israel off because they wish we would just disappear into the surrounding Arab countries. But Lebanon doesn't even give those Palestinian refugees who've been there for generations citizenship. Like I don't know where it is they're they have this idea, or they just they rely really honestly on like brute Islamophobia, where they really yes. just want to tie Palestinians to Muslims. And it ignores Palestinian Christians, but, like, they want to tie us to Saudi Arabia, even though Saudi Arabia is, like, once again, like, has this huge military, like, trading partnership alliance, whatever you want to call it. With Israel. And they're, like, it's just not, like, this idea, they want us to be interchangeable with all these Arabs, so that's like, oh, we're outnumbered. And it's like, I don't know what any of these countries have even done for us. Palestinians can't even enter each, like, there's an actual ban on Palestinian men between, like, I don't I don't know when it starts, but it, it ends at, like, 50 years old. Like, Palestinian men are not freaking allowed to enter Egypt. Like, if they apply for a visa, it's like a snowball's chance at hell. Like, it's just, this idea that we are surrounded by these natural allies is just not true. And I, I think there's also like a perception of that because like Jordan has a population of like over 70% Palestinians because it's like right there. But the Jordanian state, my, my dad's from Jordan, so I'm actually Jordanian, but the, the Jordanian state uh, was established as like a puppet of the United States basically. And that is still how it functions. Like their fucking picture on their embassy website is of the King and Donald Trump right now. And, you know, so they'll, so they'll make these statements about like, you know, we, we don't support the, the move to the embassy in Jerusalem, like, but we'll agree to disagree 
like it's it's empty it's nothing and i think there is support for the palestinian cause among like the general arab yeah, populace but not not among the state like the governments that actually run there's no there's no no one's coming to their rescue yeah girl i'm so glad i'm not in jordan right now you're gonna get my ass in jail i'm chilling i didn't i didn't because <laughs> <laughs> i was studying there and i'm i'm here in the u.s for a week i i separate myself but it's true <laughs> so i wanted to quickly have our guests introduce themselves um because we were so excited we kind of forgot that part in the beginning so if y'all could introduce who you are in whatever way you feel like describing that and how or why you're invested in this issue. So my name is Olivia, and right now I'm uh, mostly involved in activism with Portland Democratic Socialists of America. My father's family is actually Syrian originally, but he was born and raised in Jordan, a country whose population is over 70% Palestinian. So I have cousins who are Palestinian, descendants of Palestinian refugees. So it's always sort of been on my radar, um, but I was born here in the U.S. in a very isolated community in rural Ohio. So I was never really involved in activism until 2014. Uh, one of the first real activist actions I participated in was a huge march in Chicago during the siege on Gaza in the summer of 2014. I would estimate there were 15 to 20,000 people there, um, and we totally took over the streets of Chicago and, of course, got no mainstream media coverage at all. Um, that was kind of my entry point into activism and specifically activism around Palestine. And now as an officer of Portland DSA, one of my main focuses has been getting our chapter involved in local Palestine solidarity actions and BDS actions here in Portland. Awesome. And hi, I'm Rowan. I myself am Palestinian. It was, so it was just automatically, to be honest, like my parents were always... It's so funny because they're not political about American politics at all. They're like, whatever. Like, they're like, okay, we don't, to be honest, we don't see the difference between the Republican and the Democrat. So, like, whatever. But, like, with Palestine, like, they were pretty much taking me to Palestinian protests when I was, like, a freaking baby, really. So, I, I grew up going to protests. I grew up learning more and more because, especially because I used, I was in an Islamic private school when I was little. But when I got older, I went to an American public school. And I was, like, immediately met with this onslaught of, like, Islamophobia. And also, weirdly, anti-Semitism because they kept thinking I was Jewish. And so it's like, but then like after they knew I wasn't Jewish and they knew I was Palestinian, it was like the anti-Palestinian stuff. So like from that point, I had to learn really quickly, like how to counter the arguments I was hearing. Oh, Palestine doesn't exist. Why? Oh, why this? It was literally but the same people who were who were calling me like Anne Frank and making these kind of weird jokes, thinking I was Jewish, were also asking me why I was anti-Semitic. Yes. They were like, they were like, oh, why, why do you hate the Jews? Like, you're, I was like, what? You just drew a swastika in like my book. Like, it was just this bizarre thing. So I, I learned the contradiction pretty early on, and grew up with that. Grew up learning that there are these really awful people and how to like counter them for the people who just don't know any better about Israel Palestine. And so now I'm in, I'm on the National Coordinating Committee of Young Democratic Socialists of America. So that's mostly like the, the students, the college students for Democratic Socialists of America. And then I'm the co-chair of my school's Students for Justice in Palestine. And I'm bringing a lot of Palestine solidarity work to DSA as well, like trying to do these workshops on BDS and always trying to make people more aware of about anti-imperialism in general and that's about it awesome thank you both <laughs> sorry i didn't do that at the beginning <laughs> yes, you're fine 
<laughs> um, okay, so we're going to jump right back in. And I wanted to talk about the U.S.'s role in all this shit. So can either both of you describe why it's important for Americans to understand this conflict? How are we involved and why should we care? So the United States has given $138 billion to Israel from 1949 to 2015, which makes Israel the recipient of the largest amount of U.S. aid since World War II. Uh, it receives around one-third of all U.S. aid given annually. And the U.S. just signed a deal in 2016 pledging another $38 billion over the next 10 years. Um, and that doesn't even include private donations that are given to the state of Israel through, like, American charities, which is something that does not exist with any other country. And that also doesn't include, like, commercial loans and support from American banks. And when we talk about aid, you know, this concept of foreign aid, we... I feel like we often think of like poor countries in the global south um, who have like financial instability. And that is not what's happening here. Israel's a pretty well off country. They're the 16th wealthiest country in the world. And we are still spending over 10 million per day in so-called aid. And that largely goes to the military budget. And so this deal in 2016 for another 38 billion, Susan Rice said during the signing of the deal that the deal will support American jobs, which is like, crazy when you think about it because she's she's right because the united states is a nation that is controlled by capitalists the nation that operates for profit the united states directly benefits from the occupation the huge american investment funds our shareholders and companies that profit from occupation our weapons manufacturers use palestine as a testing ground lockheed martin sells billions of dollars worth of weapons to israel boeing built israel's anti-missile system here in alabama the IDF uses Caterpillar's bulldozers to demolish homes. There's so much money made there in private security. For example, the security firm G4S, they had a big private security guard presence there, uh, which they recently actually pulled out because of BDS pressure, even though they said it wasn't because of BDS pressure. Um, but they, <laughs> st they, they still own the security equipment that's used at checkpoints and at the prisons, and they also run, they still run police training academies there. Um, the city of Portland actually has a contract with G4S right now that ends in May. So that's going to be one of our big focuses to get them to not renew that contract. Our policing industry, because it's an industry here, is also profiting in Israel. This company called K9 Solutions provides dogs that conduct searches of Palestinians, which is like, not only is it so sad that they make dogs <laughs> be cops, but they make, they make dogs be fucking cops in the fucking IDF. The worst kind of cop. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, also, speaking of cops, the so-called crowd control weapons like tear gas and concussion grenades that are used in Palestine are made by a U.S. company called Combined Systems Incorporated, uh, the same company that supplied these weapons to cops in Ferguson. There's something that, the Ju that Jewish Voice for Peace is calling the deadly exchange, uh, which is an exchange where police forces in the United States literally take trips to Israel to learn from them and their tactics of like brutality and militaristic policing and profiling. You know, they bill it as counterterrorism tactics. So Jewish Voice for Peace is running a campaign right now to end the deadly exchange. And, and when we talk about who's profiting, it's also companies you wouldn't even think about that seem totally innocuous, like American concrete companies and cement companies who profit from the increasing construction of settlements. Clothing companies like Victoria's Secret profits because they source their fabrics from a factory in an illegal settlement. Even so-called startups like Airbnb profit from the Israeli occupation because they're like renting out units in the illegal settlements, which also speaks to a larger tourist industry surrounding the Israeli occupation. They have these fantasy camps for tourists where you can pretend you're in the IDF and hunt Palestinians. 
Jerry Seinfeld recently visited one with his family, uh, which is, sounds like a fun family day of hunting Arabs. And, and this all goes back to capitalism and the way that the capitalists who drive United States policy benefit from violence. They benefit from occupation. Under capitalism, violence is profitable. And we see that direct tie to our government and our politicians. For example, you can directly trace Lockheed Martin's influence to the Clintons and Obama. The ruling class has everything to gain from the exploitation of Palestinians, which is why, as socialists, the Palestinian cause is our cause. As socialists, we are against like all, all oppressive regimes and all imperialism. So in addition to standing for Palestinian human rights and their self-determination and their liberation, because we should be standing for those things, we also want to end capitalism and all the death and destruction that goes along with it. Hell yeah. I have chills right now. <laughs> Honestly, yep. Every single word of that. So true. I also want to add like a story that kind of, I guess, exposed like how deeply U.S. foreign policy is like involved in this was the story of Rachel Corey. Like Olivia mentioned Caterpillar and how Caterpillar is used to bulldoze Palestinian homes. And that's absolutely the case where Israel... They force Palestine only like Palestinians to go through these like residency requirements, for example, in East Jerusalem, where you have to prove that you live there and like every year. Well, like the Jewish families are not really asked to do that. Like they don't have this chance of getting their like Jerusalem ID cards revoked and things like that. And as part of like Israel's Jerusalem 2020 plan, they called it like they want to make sure that Jerusalem like becomes this like Jewish majority and that they don't want too many Palestinian families living there. But in general, it's used for that. It's used to like kind of get rid of Palestinians in what they deem as key areas that they want to move more settlers into or just like as collective punishment. Like if one of you has been deemed a terrorist, we're going to destroy all of your homes. But what happened with Rachel Corey is Rachel Corey was this American activist who in 2003 actually physically put herself in front of a bulldozer trying to stop this bulldozer from destroying this Palestinian home. And the bulldozer actually went ahead and ran her over anyways and killed her. And her family was actually trying to sue Caterpillar or sue the United States too. Like, you guys are supporting this occupation and now this bulldozer was used to kill our daughter. And like, not only was, did Caterpillar like send spies to like try to figure out what her legal team was doing, in the end, the court case was thrown out literally because the court said, if we like rule on this case either way, it's making a comment on official U.S. foreign policy, and this court doesn't have the jurisdiction to do that. So it's just like it's official, literally, it's official foreign policy that this bulldozer is used to like destroy homes and like mow over activists who dare to get in the way, and that's just how deeply intertwined it is. Like, they literally see Israel's interests as American interests. Can y'all talk about Zionist super PACs? What do they do and how do they influence our political system? Well, it's the biggest one is going to be APAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Fortune Magazine said it was like the second most powerful lobby in the U.S. They, yeah, you know, they... it's not actually a PAC legally. That is mm. a trick. It's a lobbying group. <laughs> That's important to be honest i didn't even realize that i thought it just like stood for that but that makes sense i see why they would do that too until i was like you know prepping for this and i was like oh they're not actually a pack because they Mm because they're not legally allowed to donate to candidates because they're a lobbying group yeah they, they just do it through these other assholes basically they write legislation for members of congress and then there's like really nice bipartisan support 
for Israeli fuckery. They have like a $100 million endowment, annual revenue of about $60 million. They spend about $2.2 to $3 million each year in lobbying Congress. And their annual conventions, like you will always see, like we saw Hillary and Trump and Bernie and I guess Nikki Haley too. It really helps you to go to these to their conventions in terms of like your political career and then you see uh, how and they of course will try to get like the most pro-israel candidates into office which is why like there's not like about a dozen representatives out of the 400 couldn't be described in any way as like pro-palestine and another scary one because i think people have been hearing sheldon adelson's name a good amount but yeah sheldon adelson he's like this he is this immensely rich donator to the Israeli American Council. And what he does with this council, with these programs, is just very intensive in terms, for example, like my school is in Los Angeles. Like when I'm not studying in the Middle East, it's in Los Angeles. And his programs are recruiting like these pro Israel students on like particularly Southern California campuses to, you know, like spread the good word about Israel and to pretty much like harass the students for justice in Palestine, to be honest. And they're behind like all these festivals. They are behind these like these book clubs. Just like in general, it's supposed it influences a lot of different organizations. They have like what they call these leadership programs for Israeli American students. I think the scarier things we were hearing too was that like there were these Israeli students who were getting like $2,000 stipends basically like to fucking troll on Facebook and Twitter about Israel. So like whenever you get some weird shit and the username is like Zionist5692, like it's just like some, it's like likely somebody who's literally being paid to do this, like paid to go into the comment sections paid to try to like influence people domestic like reading the Hasbara Hasbara which is like Israeli propaganda reading their manuals is always really weird because like the first two pages are like freaking out about how more and more young Jewish students are like not considering themselves pro-Israel anymore and they're like Israel is being abandoned when she needs her supporters the most it sounds like a fucking cult like it's very bizarre and, and it, there's just billions of dollars that are going into these kind of tactics also, to go back to APAC for a second, um, yeah. they don't just like lobby, they lobby for, I mean, they do, that's like a big part of what they do, but they also write legislation and like, you know, these, they have so much influence that like Congress will just sign on to it without reading, uh, which is what happened with the Israel Anti-Boycott Act. Uh, it had like broad bipartisan support. And then when they were actually pressed on it, like, oh, I haven't read it because yeah, they, that just, was <laughs> they just signed on to it. And they also, you know, they write a lot of the, they push for a lot of the funding that, that the United States gives to Israel, but they also write, like, they write other legislation, like they, they wrote um, legislation um, pushing sanctions on Iran. They wrote legislation pushing, like, quote-unquote, counterterrorism measures that would, like, increase the surveillance of Muslims here in the U.S. They have a lot to do with the bills that are passed here. Yeah, absolutely. Also... The Anti-Defamation Defamation League is another, oh, like, powerful group here. And it's, like, their mission is, like, ostensibly something good and necessary, which is, like, to fight anti-Semitism. But they are, like, vehemently anti-Palestinian. Um, they very publicly supported the 2014 Gaza massacre. They're, like, a group that recently attacked Keith Ellison because he once, like, made an extremely vague allusion to the influence of Israel. Like, didn't even actually mention Israel. So they literally like ran a smear campaign against him. 
also Christian Zionism has a huge mm-hmm. influence here. And like we talked about, like they literally, Christian Zionists literally believes that if there's a Jewish state, the second coming of Christ and the end of days will happen. So yeah. like if Israel succeeds in ethnically cleansing Palestinians, like Mike Pence will go to heaven is basically like <laughs> what they think. Um, they're, they're, Just to get a glimpse at how fucking unrealistic that yeah. shit is. The yeah. man- that man's going anywhere fucking near heaven is hilarious but (laughs) yes and i saw that there are like 70 million people who identify as christian zionists in the united states which is a huge number crazy also the jewish federation specifically here in portland they they've come out hard against like bds activism that's been happening here Mm -hmm. both on college campuses and like there was a campaign last year for the city to divest from caterpillar and the Jewish Federation was like absolutely ruthless to the point that uh, members of the city's Human Rights Commission they they actually like supported the campaign to divest, um, and they were being threatened and like had local me- the Jewish Federation had local media like do a smear campaign of the Human Rights Commission, um, which really backfired for them because the Human Rights Commission is like very well respected, and eventually they lost because the city council voted to divest from all corporate securities. So, but yeah, they they have a big presence here and they do a lot to like intimidate and harass and threaten activists i think something weird we were just hearing recently was i want to say in new orleans they wanted to pass like an act that was like okay we're not going we're going to divest from any company doing any human right violations it didn't even explicitly name israel or zionism or bds or anything but the zionists lobbied so hard against it because they were like nah that's like bds in disguise like did somebody say human rights violations i'm like y'all fuckers sound really guilty (laughs) but like okay yeah and that's that's like exactly what happened here because we you know uh, this coalition that DSA is a member of, we weren't a member at the time, but it was this coalition called Occupation Free Portland. And they were pressuring city council to divest from Caterpillar. And there were all these other groups that were also pressuring city council to divest from like oil companies and all these other bad things. So eventually they were like, okay, well, we're just going to divest from all corporate securities, which to me as a socialist is a win. I think that the Palestine coalition was a little bit disappointed because um, they wanted to get them like on the record saying we're doing this because of the human rights violations in Palestine. But they did end up divesting from Caterpillar. Um, That vote is actually up for renewal, I think, in April. So we're going to be watching them to make sure that that continues to be the case. I mean, yeah, what works, works. So we've talked about the United States and all of this, but let's talk about what it means on the ground. And we, you know, we've talked about it from a historical perspective, but how are Palestinians affected um, and how are women in Palestine affected? Uh, Okay, it really means a lot to me to talk about how Palestinian women are affected, especially because we were seeing recently some blowback against the idea that you can't be a Zionist and a feminist, which obviously pissed off certain people. But when you see the effects the occupation has on Palestinian women specifically, it makes it really clear. I think something that we were always hearing stories of were these women who were going into labor, but they were not allowed to go to hospitals or to like move past these checkpoints and how there have been multiple cases of Palestinian women who have died giving birth or died in labor because of these checkpoints. That's like one of the ways that it's impacted women. Another thing was actually how the racist residency requirements that I mentioned before, like particularly in Jerusalem, have such a bad effect on Palestinian women. So basically, if if a Palestinian woman's husband like decides to divorce or remarry or do anything, she could lose her ability to live in Jerusalem 
or if the children have a Jerusalem ID and they remain with the father, the women will no longer be able to live in the same city as as their mother. Or if a woman is a victim of like violent, like domestic violence in the household, they're going to be reluctant to go to Israeli authorities or they're going to be reluctant to get a divorce because this actually impacts where they're going to be allowed to live and they might be forcibly transferred outside of Jerusalem and, and again, losing their children's custody. And if a Jerusalemite woman like divorces a Palestinian man, because like let's say she like married a, a man in the West Bank and then she went to live in the West Bank. If she wants to divorce him, she and she decides to return to Jerusalem to reinstate uh, the ID, she might be trapped like there. There'll be the for- like if she ends up being forced to go back to let's say she divorces man, but like her home family in Jerusalem isn't isn't the best either because patriarchy is fucking everywhere. She would like she'd be devoid of like fundamental rights such as the right to movement, the right to work. And this organization, I'm hoping we can link to this report later for people who want to read it. But they conducted they conducted interviews with women and they published and they found that the lengthy process of reunification applications leaves women in a state of financial and social limbo. They're not able to access health insurance, social security benefits or well-paid work. And actually, a particular story that's been happening because I always like to put cases forward so people can like actually humanize it. But there was a woman named Isra Jebis. She was trying to maintain her residency in Jerusalem. Like you have to go, you have to physically prove that you live there and all these things. And she was trying to move her stuff. I want to say from the West Bank, she was trying to move her stuff because someone from Gaza is not going to marry someone from Jerusalem. Like it's just not going to fucking happen in terms of like who can live where. So she was coming from the West Bank and she had her stuff that she was moving back in to like try to go back to her home. And she had a, again, her name is Isra uh, Jabis, but she had a gas canister in the back of her car and there was a leak and her car actually to like the worst luck possible, like exploded near an Israeli checkpoint. And she's there like screaming for help, like to go to a hospital. And of course they didn't believe that like her car accidentally, like they didn't do any sort of investigation into like, why would somebody who was planning to blow themselves up have all these papers and stuff that they were trying to renew their residency or that day she was moving all these things. But like, she was never taken to a hospital. She still hasn't been taken to a hospital. They literally she's actually completely like burned and her face is scarred because they only gave her enough medicine to survive like nothing to actually fix like her skin and she's still just like in a terrible condition and she was obviously convicted in this military court that has a 99 percent conviction rate but that was just like one of the more awful effects of like what these residency requirements like having to prove continuously prove you live there basically because you're not jewish kind of has on these women I think another story that I think is really important for people to know because of the effects or what Palestinian women go through in Israeli jails, there's a woman named Rasmiya Oda, and she, when she was like, I want to say 16 or 17, she was brought to trial, she was accused of, this was like ages ago, this was like in the 60s, she was accused of being behind these Jerusalem bombings. And she was actually immensely tortured and raped multiple times. There was a point where she testified. She testified to the UN about all this, actually. There was a point where she testified that they brought in her father in front of her. Again, just huge trigger warning. I'm so sorry. But they brought in her father in front of her and they, like, threatened to, like, like, rape her father in front of her or to, like, make him do that. Like, it was, like, really brutal grotesque things and um she actually ended up being released in a prisoner exchange she moved to the united states that was after she testified to the united nations about 
how Israeli soldiers treat Palestinian women in their custody. And she moved to the United States, and she was in the United States for about 20 years, I want to say, in Chicago. She started, I want to say, Arab American Action Network, or she was specifically involved in activism yeah, for women, right. like immigrant yeah. immigrant women in Chicago. She was helping them like learn how to get driver's license. She was helping them learn English if they wanted to leave an abusive family situation, get a divorce. She was helping them out with that. And eventually, they she was accused of lying on her her naturalization papers to be able to live here because they said she didn't mention her conviction. Uh, in Israeli court, and which was weird because she literally testified at the UN. Like, it wasn't secret. Like, the State Department knew, all these agencies knew, and the fact that they waited 20 years to say, like, oh, it ended up looking pretty clear that they were just threatened by, like, her activism and the stuff that she was to do, like, doing in Chicago. She eventually was deported. She is in Amman, Jordan now. But I always highlight her case because, like, one, like, the treatment that she faced, this, like, gendered violence that she faced in Israeli prison, this stuff that she was, this activism that she was doing for Arab women that was was so amazing and how that was, like, kind of taken away from her after she was already displaced in 48 in the Nakba. She was displaced again in 67. Her sister was murdered in front of her when they raided her house. Because Israeli soldiers, they constantly do these sort of raids of people's houses. Her sister was murdered during one of those. And then now she's been deported because of... So it's just like how she faced violence at both the hands mm-hmm. of Israel and the United States. Uh, she like If anyone wants to go with her story, she is an incredibly strong woman. But it's, it's just to say that like she's definitely not the only one who's faced this kind of treatment in like a brutal prison like that. Like these things happen and it's obviously like, who are you going to tell? Are you going to tell like, are you going to call the Israeli police? Like who, like there's nothing you can do when you're in that kind of situation and they have all this sort of power over you. Stuff like that, that's how it impacts Palestinian women, especially. Yeah, and another like very public thing that is happening right now is the imprisonment of Ahed Tamimi, who is Mm -hmm. the 17-year-old girl who slapped an IDF soldier who was on her property after like they had shot her cousin in the face. And she's been in prison for like two months now, I think. Uh, and they keep pushing her trial date back. Her mother and her cousin were also imprisoned. Um, and this is a larger pattern of Israel's imprisonment of children. Israel, like, systemically prosecutes between 500 and 700 children in military courts every year. And the vast majority of them endure physical violence while they're imprisoned. Many of them are put in solitary confinement during their imprisonment. Almost none of them have a parent pres- present with them during interrogation. And this is just, like, the children that are lucky enough to be alive. The IDF has a shoot-to-kill policy, so if you're a teenager throwing rocks at a military tank, the likelihood that they will shoot you to kill you is very high. And, of course, they face zero accountability for murdering children. Yeah, absolutely. Like, when we talk about what's impacting Palestinian women, like, what would make Palestinian women's lives better, that's why you can't be a Zionist and a feminist, because what would remove these women of the occupation would be this removal of this, like, brute military state. Because what Ahed was actually doing, like, she had slapped the soldier, like, after they had shot her cousin in the head. His head is now deformed. Like, they shot a rubber bullet into his head, and that was what she had just witnessed, and that was what caused her to do that and what all these this is what palestinian women face is this constant fear of what's going to happen to their children like something i'm constantly haunted by was hearing this um i mean i'm sure you guys have heard or if not these palestinian boys in gaza who were murdered on the beach when they were playing soccer and Mm -hmm. the three of them were killed 
like watching his mother say how much she regrets letting him go out to play and how she wishes it was her and actively that she said that she wishes Israel would just kill them all at once rather than making them watch their relatives die piece by piece was how she put it was that like the siege is not a life like if we have breast cancer, we can't go to the hospital. If we need medicine, we can't. So we don't have stuff to feed our kids. Like we're watching our kids die. Like this is this this what their lives are. Like there's this is what Palestinian women have to go through. Is like watching their family go through this themselves, going through these awful things. So it's just like these really personal stories that I just wish more people knew. So what do you say to people who call this work anti-Semitic? I think calling the work of resistance to to occupation and colonization anti-Semitic is anti-Semitic itself. Like there's real anti-Semitism happening in the world every day, but the opposition to the actions of the state of Israel to a government is not anti-Semitism and calling it so is frankly offensive. Like you don't see anyone calling opposition to the Saudi Arabian government Islamophobia. Uh, Opposition to a government, to like a state actor is not the same thing as opposition to an ethnicity or or a race or religion. Like the work we do is anti-Zionism because we are opposed to the establishment of an ethno-state, which is the stated goal of Zionists. But there are groups like Jewish Voice for Peace who are doing this work, who like unite around their shared inspiration in the Jewish tradition. And to call this work anti-Semitic is an insult to them. And I think even more fundamentally is that they need to look at why Israel is allies with like with countries like Poland and Saudi Arabia, like Poland just passed this like Holocaust denial law that pretended that no Polish people were collaborators with the Nazis during the Holocaust. And Israel is this ally with them. How like you see Netanyahu pushing these like George Soros theories, like these like George Soros runs the world. Like it's crap that sounds exactly the same as like actual alt-right people, Jewish people. And I get it's I think overall it's like you have to look at what Israel has actually resulted in, which is Yemeni Jewish people saw their children being sold to be adopted. Ethiopian Jewish people have been uh, given birth control without their knowledge in order to have like less like undesirable black Jewish babies. And again, overall, it's like they keep pushing this idea that Israel is going to be the only way for Jewish people to be safe is if they try to violently create this majority for themselves but then they are going ahead and saying no we're constantly in living in fear of this Palestinian threat and it's like you're never gonna like the reality is that you're never going to feel safe and secure until you get rid of this occupant of these like more violent things that the state is doing like if you actually want a safe and secure place for Jewish people like in this land we just have to remove these things that are deciding that non-Jewish Palestinians are inferior and deserve to be treated as such. Like, I think that's more fundamental than that, is that you have to take a step back and realize you don't want it to be this way forever anyways. Like, you just don't. None of us do. Coming to the end now, so I wanted to hear what y'all think is the best possible solution to end the occupation of Palestine. So first, we need to stop, like, upholding the farce of a a peace process and a two-state solution. Like, the Israeli government is not interested in peace. A two-state solution can never be possible because of how, like, far-reaching the Israeli settlements and occupation is. There needs to be one democratic state with equal rights for all, with the right of return for Palestinians, um, and defund and disband the IDF. And, like, again, with the connection to capitalism, like, we need to really be making that connection when we talk about, like, a truly democratic state with equal rights for everyone. Like, 
I don't know. I don't know. And maybe Rowan has more thoughts on this, but I don't know how it can be achieved, like, short of a revolution. Like, I don't think electing good progressive people to the Knesset is really going to change that much. I mean, the funny thing with the Knesset is, like, somebody recently, they were like, oh, there's racism in Israel, but there's, like, Palestinian members of the Knesset. I was like, you mean the ones (laughs) that were physically dragged out by security when they tried to protest Trump? That's like like, like that... That's like a tweet that's like, make more POC prison guards. Jesus Christ. It's like, that's the thing. It's like they're, they want us to be happy that we have like some symbolic representation and it's bizarre. But honestly, we have to get rid of the Palestinian Authority. It has been nothing but a subcontractor for the occupation. Like literally all the Palestinian Authority does is take off Israel's hand the like dirty work of like making sure there's some form of like hospitals and education and stuff. And... It coordinates security with Israel. Like, it just makes the occupation cheaper. So, I think in general, like, what Olivia said about a one state is absolutely true. I think it's I think it's easier for people to understand our cause when we talk about it in terms of equal rights. Like, yes, like, Jewish people can live there and they'll be fine. We just need Palestinian people to be allowed to return. Like, why, why is there a Jewish right of return and no Palestinian right of return? Like, they're trying to say, oh, well, they're the grandchildren of refugees. Like, y'all are talking about you're coming back after 2,000 years. Like, how are you going to talk about grandchildren being too far? off like none of this is too far off i don't know what you're even saying so it a one democratic state one that actually has this moral vision that we're not going to be a part of death and misery for profit which i think speaks to socialists in general and just having it be that this this it can be a place for Jewish people to have their holidays and to feel like have that community and to feel good, but we could all live together and have it not be that ethnicity is the defining factor of the state. Like that's what we just have to get rid of ethno nationalism. Anything else that either of you want to add before we close it out? Support BDS. Free, <laughs> free Palestine. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I do want to add, so I was listening to the podcast y'all did on uh, organizing recently, and the woman you had on was talking about how she's organizing not as a victim of oppression, but standing in her power. And that mm-hmm. like really spoke to me. And I think that's important and really relates to what we're talking about here. Because when we are united in struggle, that is what gives us power. That is why the Palestinian resistance has lasted for over a century, because there's power in solidarity. In doing this work with that solidarity is what gives me hope that we will see a free Palestine in our lifetimes. That's the greatest thing to ever end this on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the darkest, like shittiest thing ever. Thank you for ending it on a positive note. Thank you so much again for being on this show. We really appreciate hearing your two voices because it was obviously incredible. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So as always, you can reach us on Twitter at Season of the Bee and Instagram. We're also on Facebook, Season of the Bee. Please send us your music at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. We have some new merch up on the website, so check that out. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As well as if you like what we do and you want to support what we do, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. And I'm here by myself, so I'm just going to like say that I love you to all of the coven. Working with this coven is the most inspirational thing ever. 
and I love them all because like I can't say I love you to them in real time right now. I just hope they feel the love. And thanks again to our guests, Olivia and Roanne. All right. Bye.